Well, we're in John chapter 8 again this morning, and uh, we're going to be considering those verses that were read to us earlier from verse 21 through to verse 30. This evening we'll continue from verse 31, and uh, we'll be considering the verses this evening very much from the perspective of the gospel and uh, to those who are not of faith. As is often the case with the Bible, you can often bring out different types of emphasis from the same passage of Scripture. There's much that could be said in the verses we're looking at this evening uh, and direct that very much at Christian people and bring some slightly different nuances out of the text. Uh, This evening is going to be uh, very much from an evangelistic uh, perspective that we'll be considering those verses. But this morning, John 8, 21 to 30... And this passage confronts us with a very important question that I want to put to each one of you. Will you die in your sins? Will you die in your sins? Or will you not? And that's the one big question that this passage, I believe, prompts us to consider. Because in the first instance, this passage will show us the ruin that comes through unbelief. Let me ask you a couple of questions. When the gospel is preached, is it true to say that there is only ever one outcome in view, which is the salvation of sinners? Is it right to say that? Or put it this way. When the gospel is preached and no one is saved, is it true to say that nothing has been accomplished? Well, we'll see. We'll see. John Calvin said this. The gospel is never thrown uselessly into the air. Because, in the words of 2 Corinthians 2, verse 16, the gospel will always either breathe the odour of life or it will breathe the odour of death. They're the words of the Scripture. What the Apostle meant when he said that if someone hears the gospel and it has the effect of entrenching them in their unbelief, actually the gospel has still done its work. One of the effects that gospel preaching will have is entrenching people in unbelief. And when that happens, that's not the gospel not working That's the gospel still doing its work. And that's not how many Christians think of that today. Because they're ignoring what the Bible teaches. One of the effects of gospel preaching is to entrench people in unbelief. It is to them the odour of death. Now in verse 21, Jesus says something quite startling. Now, these are the words of Christ. 
Listen. There will be those who seek him, yet they will nevertheless die in their sins. Unforgiven. Check it out in the Bible in front of you and make sure I'm not misquoting him. They will seek him, but they will nevertheless die in their sins. Some of you might be thinking, well, hang on. Hebrews 11.6 says that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It does. But it says those who diligently seek him. And check out the start of that verse. Because that, first, that verse begins with the issue of faith. These men that Jesus is talking to do not and will not ever exercise faith, saving faith in Christ. They will never diligently seek him from the heart. Never will they seek him in repentance of their sins. Never never will they seek him in acknowledgement of all that Christ is and of all that Christ has done for them. They will never seek him like that. They will at length feel how great a loss they have suffered by rejecting Christ when he freely offered himself to them. They will feel it, but for them it will be too late. The day of grace for them will have ended, and the time for repentance for them will have expired and they will die in their sins. These are sobering words from Christ. And nothing has changed. So it is for you today. If you hear the call of the gospel, you must respond today. Do not leave getting right with God for another day, because that other day may never arrive. Who knows the next time when your conscience will be stirred? Do you? Who knows the next time you will hear the gospel being preached? If you know today that you need to get right with God through Christ, you need to deal with it today. How many more days will God spare you to hear the gospel? Can you tell me? And there is a form of seeking after God which is, of, is not of the right type and it's not of the right motive. There can be a seeking after God which is only of the moment. A seeking after God merely to get you out of a particular situation that you're in right now. A seeking which is entirely self-centered. Absent of repentance of sins. A seeking which contains no recognition of the person and work of Christ. A seeking which is absent of true saving faith. A seeking which, if God answered it, would soon be abandoned once favorable favorable circumstances have resumed. The problem for the scribes and the Pharisees is that they would come, as many still do today, and seek after God, 
but they come with a big long list of their own terms and conditions. They'll take God, they'll take God's Messiah, but on their terms. But that leaves them with no Messiah at all. And many today still want God's help, but only in that way. I only want God in this part of my life. I only want God to this extent. And I only want God if it achieves this result for me. But that God will be a God of your own invention. If anyone will come to the true and living way, you must come according to the terms and conditions, if you want to use that phrase, that he has established in God's word. Confession of your sins and in a forsaking of them with a broken and a humble heart and in faith and in turning to Christ as Saviour and Lord. That's the kind of seeking that leads to life everlasting. Anything other than that and you're in grave danger even though you may have sought him still be in grave danger of dying in your sins. Now Jesus talks about his going away. He means I'm, I'm soon about to leave this world. My earthly ministry is drawing to a close. The time of my death and sacrifice approaches. I must depart. I'll be going back to my Father in heaven where I came from. Now, even though we're only in the eighth chapter of 21 chapters in John's Gospel, actually, Christ's crucifixion is only six months away. The final week of Christ's life and his death and resurrection take up the whole of the second half of John's Gospel. The final ten chapters of John's Gospel are all about the last week in the life of Christ and then his death and resurrection. And so this is actually, although it's chapter 8, and you might think we're still fairly early on in the ministry of Christ, we're not. We're getting right towards the end. And this going away is speaking of that which is facing him just in six months' time. And many of his hearers would seek him too late, having discovered too late that he was the Messiah who they ought to have received. But the door of mercy would then be shut. They would be permanently excluded from heaven. Because there is no other way but through the Lord Jesus Christ. That these words of Christ show us that a man or a woman in this life can spiritually have gone beyond a point of no return. And they, where they will never be saved. Now, you and I don't have that wisdom or discernment to know when that is. Jesus is God, and he has the wisdom of God. He's able to make these kinds of declarations about individuals in a way that we cannot, which is why we never give up hope for those who are lost, and we continue to pray for them all the time, because we, don't, we, we can't predict these things we don't have this wisdom and knowledge that Christ possessed. 
But it may well be that you're fast approaching that time when your own heart, like Pharaoh's in Egypt, becomes so hardened. That's where you're heading. And it just won't stop. The result is that for many of these people that Jesus was addressing this day, many would die miserably in their sins, with their sins upon them, unpardoned and unforgiven. If you're not a Christian, I want you to think about that. There is a place where Christ is now, from where he will return a second time. And he's coming back to take back into heaven with him all who ever trusted him by faith. For those of us who are Christians, well, that's glorious. But if you remain in unbelief, for you, heaven will remain a place where you cannot go. And you'll remain in your sins, in eternal condemnation and in eternal punishment And that is the ruin of dying in your sins. It's impossible that an unforgiven, unconverted, unbelieving man or woman can go to heaven. It is possible to seek Christ too late or from a wrong motive and so to seek him in vain. But for those of you who are believers... Do you remember that the last message in the previous series was all about assurance? If you do belong to Christ, you can know that you do belong to him. Now, as with many today, the scribes and Pharisees can only mock and pour scorn on all of these truths that Jesus is presenting to them. They try to turn around what Jesus says in order to ridicule him. Now, at this time in Jewish culture, to take your own life was viewed as being a very great sin which merited severe punishment from God and those who took their own lives, they would find themselves in the deepest, darkest corner of Hades. And so what Jesus says to them about them not being able to go where he is going, they turn it into a big joke. In their own minds, these self-righteous men already have their seats booked at the top table. So when Jesus says, I'm going where you cannot go, they think, oh, well, we know where we're going to be. So he must be over there in that deepest, darkest corner. So they turn it into a big joke. Oh, no, shock, horror. He's not going to kill himself, is he? Ha, ha, ha. That's what that verse is. Turn it into a big joke. Ridicule him. Mock him. But Jesus points out that their response just provides further evidence of the chasm that exists between them and him. Far from that being the place where Jesus is going, that is the place that they are from. You are from beneath I am from above. You see, his response to them directly attacks what they've just said. Because that's the picture they've had in their mind. We're at the top table. Jesus is over there. Oh, no, he says. He switches it straight around. You're from that deepest, darkest place. 
Now you see how what Jesus is saying to them in response corresponds to what they've just said to him. You're the ones from beneath. I'm from above. Jesus is not of this world. They are of this world. Jesus is from that place of holiness and righteousness and truth. While these men are bound up in a world where all the thoughts and plans and motives and loves and ambitions that are going on in their hearts and minds are warped and twisted and tainted because they are sinful and wicked hearts and minds. All mankind are naturally opposed to Christ except those who he elevates from that position by his grace through the work of his Holy Spirit in saving faith. Unless your hearts are changed, unless you learn to be of one mind with Christ, you remain totally unfit for heaven and must at last die in your sins. This is why, you see, the Apostle Paul, for example, talks of Christians as having been delivered from and conveyed to. You've been delivered from the power of darkness and conveyed into the kingdom of the Son of his love. That great chasm between you and him has been breached for you in his grace and he's taken you from the one place to the next. That's why Peter says that all Christians are those who've been called out of that darkness into his marvelous light. That's why Christians are likewise described as being, in John chapter 15, not of this world. Because Christ has chosen them out of the world. Of this world is where we were in our sins. But he's chosen and called us out of that. We're not there anymore. And that's why it makes sense when we read in Colossians chapter 3, set your minds on things above, not on the things of the earth. Because that's, that's where you were. Don't set your mind where you were, if you're a Christian. Set your mind where you are, in Christ, on high, in light, with him. He has raised you to that elevated position and place, seated with Christ in heavenly places. But if you do not believe in Christ, you will die in your sins. Now, unbelief is not the only thing that brings God's condemnation upon you. Unbelief is not the only sin of which you are guilty. When you're judged on judgment day, you will be judged and punished by God according to all of your sins. Every thought, every word, every deed. But unbelief ultimately is the thing that's keeping you from knowing Christ. Unbelief ultimately is what's keeping you cut off from God's grace, which is offered to you in Christ and keeping you from being saved from the wrath to come. Because if you will not believe in him, 
you will die in your sins. This is the ruin that comes with unbelief. And secondly, we need to remember, don't we? Only belief in Christ will save you. He says, if you do not believe that I am he, it has to be him. And those words would more literally be rendered, if you do not believe that I am. Hence, many see that Christ is referring to that great name found in the Old Testament, that God is I am. The old uh, Christian father Augustine remarks that Jesus meant nothing less than this. Except you believe that I am God, you shall die in your sins, is how Augustine paraphrases that verse. And the reply that these men give only serves to prove just how incapable is the sinful heart and mind to apprehend and understand the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. These verses serve to show just what you're up against whenever you share the gospel with an unbeliever. Because they say to Jesus, who are you? Who are you? Who is he? How can these men not know? How can they not know? These men, with their Old Testament scriptures open before them, how can they not join up all the dots of Old Testament prophecy about the promised Messiah and come up with a picture which, when they place it upon the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, see that those two things match perfectly? How can they not do that? How can they not know? Even at the age of 12, long before his actual preaching and teaching ministry began, long before he'd performed any miracles, even as a 12-year-old boy, he was astounding all the learned men of Jerusalem in the temple for three days as he asked questions of them and answered their questions that they were putting to him. And he left them utterly bemused. How a boy of 12 can have such wisdom. And it went on for three days. And then there's been the last two and a half years of his ministry and miracles. And these men have been following every event in great detail, trying to trip him up and catch him out. How can they not know who he is? Walking the roads of Galilee and Judea amongst them is none other than the man who is God. How can they not know? How can they not see? How much more evidence do you need? But they are blind because the sinful heart and mind cannot see. Here in this man, and in, this, and in no other than this man, is salvation and redemption from all of our sins. Of all people, how can these men not know? They should be the ones running round the whole of Israel, 
saying to the people, come and listen to Jesus, he's the one. But in their sins, they cannot know or see or even recognize the Messiah, let alone acknowledge their need of him. And that's what you're up against. That's what I'm up against. Every time you share the gospel with someone. Because unless God does that mighty work of saving grace by his spirit, there they will remain. In verse 26, Jesus says, there are so many righteous judgments that he could bring against them now, but now is not the time. Here are the facts of the matter, whether you can see them or not. And he simply states factual truth. He doesn't try to argue with them. He doesn't try to reason with them. He just states truth. He is the one who's been sent into this world by the one who is true. And everything you've heard from his lips is nothing else but that which God has given him to say. And that's enough to say. That's all he says. There will be times when no amount of argument, no amount of explanation will make any difference at all to people not being able to see. Why? Well, look at verse 30. There were others there. And this little section concludes with others who as Jesus spoke these words, did believe. There were others who did believe. Now that's really important. As they listened to the very words that one group can't understand, these others, by the very same words, do understand and do believe. The problem with the ones who can't understand is not the words that Jesus is saying. There's nothing wrong with his message. There's nothing wrong with the way that he's saying it. There's nothing wrong with what he's saying. They are the problem. Because they're blind and dead in their sins. The very same words these can understand. And they do believe. Because that's how the gospel works. To them, the words of Christ have been the odour of death. To them, the same words, the odour of life. Because it's God who does the work. This is why we never try to tamper with the message in order to generate a response. That's why. Turn to the Bible. That's why. Learn from the Scriptures how the Gospel works, how God works in saving people, and stay to it. Don't tamper with it. But here's the whole point of it. Only belief in this Jesus Christ will save you. Anything less will leave you lost to die in your sins 
And for some, this word and this message will be the odour of death. For others, the same words, the same message will be the odour of life. Life everlasting. How will it be for you this morning? One short final point to close. For these things Christ came. From verse 28. For these things Christ came. The day would come when these religious leaders would finally get their wish and Jesus would be nailed to a Roman cross just like the common criminals who were crucified either side of him. These men have expected that when that day finally comes, they would thereafter utter a great sense of relief and experience a great release that finally this whole unfortunate episode with Jesus of Nazareth is over. Everything can now return to normal and they can get on with their self-righteous lives. Not at all. The death of Jesus Christ would only serve to heap even more coals upon their collective conscience that this man really was who he claimed to be, really had done what he said he would do. Check out the words of Jesus. When you lift me up, when you deliver me to be crucified, then you will know that I do nothing of myself. The truth will dawn on you guys, but it will be too late for you because you're too far gone. Jesus is saying, my death will not be you taking my life into your hands. Remember that about the death of Christ. The death of Christ was not men taking his life into his hands. The death of Christ was Christ himself committing himself into his Father's hand and giving up his life for you. And these men will know it, but it will be too late. No one ever lived like Christ. No one's ever died like Christ. No one has defeated the grave like Christ. And these men will know it. Even one of the Roman centurions who would look up at the body of Christ would be convicted in his own soul, truly. This man was the Son of God. And this is the eternal Son, the promised Messiah, the anointed Christ who's come into the world to save sinners. This is the man of sorrows acquainted with grief who would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. It was we who despised and rejected him and who refused to esteem him. It was he who was led like a lamb to the slaughter for our transgressions and for our iniquities. It was on him that God the Father laid the iniquities of us all in order to bruise him and make him an offering for our sin, for my sin. At every point, the Lord Jesus Christ was fulfilling all the purposes for which the Father had sent him and declaring the message that the Father had given him to declare. And yet all these men, 
would still die in their sins. But others, hearing, believed in him. And there are two choices facing each of you this morning. Will you die in your sins? Or will you believe and in believing have life in his name?